Welcome to episode 89 of the Get Cyber Resilient Show. I'm Dan McDermott and I'll be your host for today. This week is our Behind the News episode and I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity expert, Garrett O'Hara. Today, we'll be looking behind the cyber situation in the Ukraine and the call to arms for a cyber army to volunteer. We'll dive into the somewhat creepy world of stalkerware. We'll review the pros and cons of data gathering from our intelligence communities and we'll end with a wrap of the latest breaches to make the headlines. Gar, let's begin with a review of the developments from a cyber front in the Ukraine. Wow, uh, what a what a whopper! Um, yeah, we, we were talking before we we started recording and just how much there is here, and then we could spend three hours talking about it, um, and probably not even scratch the surface. Um, it's moving quickly. Uh, Dan is is kind of I suppose the fairly obvious statements. You know, you're seeing. Um, the Ukrainians kind of deputy prime minister come out and ask for um, folks to volunteer for the IT army, which I think is the first time that's ever happened. You know, kind of an official government uh, call for, yeah, really a sort of volunteer army for um, cyber. Interesting to see how that pans out and what it actually means, because um, on the surface of it, uh, you know, I think broadly there's support for U- Ukraine. So, where my head was at was you know, like how many people will volunteer because it's far easier to do that from home, right? You know, you can sit at home in whatever jurisdiction you are and, and you know, think you're helping and, and try and jump in to assist with that IT army versus, and you've probably seen the, the, the stories of individuals who are making their way to, you know, through Poland to actually physically fight for Ukraine. Um, I've seen one guy from the from Britain, some of the US guys, like it's, it's happening where people, for whatever reason, um, feel strongly about it so they're heading over there but uh, you know i think very easy to jump online and um take direction they've got a telegram channel which i'm sure you're across to kind of direct the the troops air quote troops <laughs> um I, I don't, like how, how do you do that like as a you know as an it army or whatever you want to call it that seems like the the potential for mishap is not small um mm. you know people thinking they're helping or maybe not as experienced as they think they may be and um that's the worry you know that there's a call to action and that goes wrong and then you see that kind of collateral damage that we talked about last time you know where you want to do one thing um and then people not knowing exactly what they're doing maybe cause a ddos attack that brings out something else and all of a sudden we've got bigger issues than um you know the sort of physical fighting um and and interesting to see the the it army at the same time as anonymous came out and, and kind of said Hey, you know we're uh, we're now in a cyber war with uh, Russia, and we're able to apparently take over some of the state-sponsored TV channels, and you know put Ukrainian content and and sort of memes on there, which is it it, it seems like movie stuff. Um, mm. Conti have jumped in, like honestly, it just it feels like a cyber brawl more than a cyber warfare. It's you know all these all these kind of um, yeah sort of gangs that are coming in and and sort of saying who they're allegiance to and and you know, then threatening everybody else kind of thing. So yeah, God, it feels scary and very, very messy. Uh, Indeed. And I think, you know, you've just referenced sort of two of the sort of more well-known sort of cyber gangs, right? And one is sort of landed on each side of of the equation here with Anonymous very much sort of on the Ukrainian side and trying to, I guess, really use their uh their abilities to maybe basically infiltrate the media right in russia and actually start to show 
Russians some of the the news from the other side, if you like, um, because it is so heavily controlled there, um, particularly sort of through TV and that. So, um, so they're obviously looking at that front and how to actually, you know, allow for more information to be shared and therefore, you know, for Russians to be able to, I guess, be more informed themselves. Um, and on the other front, we have uh, Conti who are throwing their support behind the Russian government and and say that they'll, you know, look at doing cyber attacks to uh to to on. I guess, pursue, um, you know, I guess a digital warfare on that front as well. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's quite frightening. The the thing that does occur to me, and and you and I have we've been talking about this for weeks now, um, but it's the, you know, the value of critical national infrastructure and how much of a conversation that is globally, certainly here in Australia. But um, I, I think many of us had, you know, sort of bated breath waiting to see the lights get switched out in Ukraine, which mm. hasn't really happened so far. And I think there's some kind of raised eyebrows about that because I think there was not an expectation, but it, it certainly seemed in the realms of possibility, given all the other stuff that is actually happening, you know, the, where where uh, sort of bombs are dropping and then the you know, kinetic response or the actual physical warfare that's happening. It didn't seem like it was beyond the, the bounds of reality that, yeah, you would see a large outage um, power or, you know, healthcare or, yeah, communications um, that hasn't happened so far. And I've, I've heard some kind of questions and commentary in the media around why that is. And it's a little bit maybe like colonial um, where, you know, you, you sort of poke the bear and you probably realize you did, you shouldn't. Um, but, it, you know, is there an element of if the, oh, I hate to even use this expression now, but that like the nuclear option of cyber attacks came in and you did like literally bring down the critical infrastructure of a country, is that going too far? And would that, cause a retaliation from you know other interested parties in the war you know i'm not not really sure there but um yeah it's sort of a relief i think uh, if nothing else and, and you probably saw um the ukraine folk getting ahead of the potential for communications outage and you know tweeted for friend <laughs> elon musk to get starlink rolled out there which which they did which i thought you know that's kind of a it's an interesting thing um you know get get starlink going get the infrastructure in place where even if there is a an attack on you know the traditional uh, communications infrastructure that you've got the satellite connectivity in to at least keep the communications with the outside world open. So I mean we saw that in seen that in a bunch of places, right? Egypt, um, um, you know, I'm going to forget all the places, but you know when mm. stuff like this starts happening, one of the first things you often see is communications just get dropped, and um, you know that's so people can't organize and and sort of. Uh, you know, figure out where the attack front is and how to organize troops, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's complex, isn't it? I mean, I just, I don't remember ever feeling like there was so much going on here uh, in terms of cyber when, when two countries were going at each other. No, definitely not. Uh, and, and maybe it has before, but it's certainly just, it's definitely more prominent now, right? And it's much more in our in our social consciousness and, and, you know, it makes mainstream media and those sort of things. But I think it's a fascinating area that we, you know, we haven't seen that massive cyber attack and let's hope we don't, right? And and yeah. I think you say there's, there's a few interesting elements to that as to, you know, why that might be and, and what sort of happens if it does. Um, you know, I think there has been talk a little bit around the notion of, you know, the Geneva Con Convention from a, you know, from a war perspective and the way that you know um you meant to tr you know have humanitarian rights still during you know during a battle and that um you know does some of that you know 
consciousness from you know from like you say the kinetic sort of world actually flow into cyber as well and influence you know the way that people think i think you know potentially but maybe that's about <laughs> putting too much you know goodwill into into what's actually happening i think the other one though is is exactly what you said is is that what is the flow on from that in terms of retaliation right um and you know there has also been talk around the fact that you know can a cyber attack actually trigger a clause for NATO to respond? So we know that the Ukraine is not a, a member of NATO, not one of the nations protected there. But what if a cyber attack, you know, flowed through the Ukraine and hit Poland's national infrastructure um, and who are part of NATO? Um, and then therefore, what does that mean in terms of NATO having a response, whether that's cyber or more right um because all of a sudden they feel like they've actually been brought into you know into the war itself so i uh, look it's a, an incredibly fascinating area um one that you know sadly you know we're sort of watching play out in front of our eyes right and then and, and with bated breath like i think just because it hasn't happened so far doesn't mean that tomorrow's not the day that you know that that attack comes and that uh and that you know things are you know impacted significantly from a from a critical infrastructure perspective yeah spot on and um yeah i mean the cyber geneva convention it's a work in progress There's, there are people as you i'm sure you know like working to to get that done um and it just I mean, it really does make sense these days like it it seems it seems less of a nice to have and much more of a we really need to get that in place because um yeah, the the thoughts of, you know, hospitals getting popped or the power getting out. I mean, that means it, it's got, you know, I mean, it's very, very significant impact to, and, and ultimately probably loss of human life. So, you know, at some point you kind of, yeah, we need to have that conversation. Um, and, and totally agree in that, yeah, Article 5 with the, um, within NATO um, and reading, you know, some about that, um, the, I think the problem is the ambiguity. Apparently, the only other time it's actually been triggered was for 9-11 over in the US. So um, when September 9-11 happened, it got triggered. But um, that's the only time, I believe, that Article 5 has kind of kicked in. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And I love your example, actually. You know, it, it is a bleed over into another country. And if you see, you know, significant impact, I mean, I certainly don't know the wording for Article 5, but the fact that it's even being talked about sort of points to the how many people have eyes in this and the cyber side of things and the fact that you could be talking about a, a triggering of the same thing that 9-11 triggered in this context sort of points to how important cyber has actually become. And it's we've seen it before, right, in terms of that, you know, flowing out from, you know, one where an attack starts and where it ends, right? Yeah. Um, it happened only a few years ago with uh, with, with NotPetya, right? Yeah, I mean, the same two countries, um, yep. so many similarities that... Uh, it's frightening, really, isn't it? Um, history repeats itself. Apparently, that's a, a saying. But, uh, you know, here we are, same two countries. Um, yeah, and that was it. Um, yeah, they were going after Ukraine, went for uh, an organization or a platform called MEDOX, and, um, you know, which is U Ukrainian, and, um, you know, successfully popped it. But 20% um, of the folks who were using that uh, particular application or, or product were outside mm -hmm. of Ukraine and happened to be very large logistics companies. So you saw, um, as, as you know, everyone would have seen in the media, the, the trucks backed up at ports and the, the huge impact to logistics globally. And the worry there is that 
given all the other stuff that the world is dealing with, with COVID and supply chain and mm. certainly in Australia, you know, we've got all the floods that are happening, but the, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening around the world where the last thing we need is another not petcha. Um, we, we just, we just don't need that. So fingers crossed. Yeah, but uh, it's definitely it certainly could happen at any stage, and yep. uh, I guess we we continue to uh, to to keep an eye on things, see how it evolves. Um, but like you said, started this uh, conversation with the, the the call to arms right around it as well, um, which will be interesting to see. I mean, they are saying it's you know they're calling to arms Ukrainians, saying that there's a lot of talented Ukrainians around the world, mm-hmm. and how can they help? And that, but like you say, there might be plenty of other people that decide that they want to try to help. Um, but you know, is are they really helping? How can they stay coordinated? Um, and certainly don't want to have people getting in the way either. So it's a it's a it's a tricky balance again. Well, Gar, I think uh, we like you said we could certainly uh, talk about the situation for for hours. Um, but I think uh, probably leave it there for today. And uh, and I'm sure we'll continue to uh to revise you know where this is at and where it evolves to um in the coming weeks as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the next story that we wanted to take a look into is the consumer-grade spyware called Stalkerware. Uh, let's let's begin with a look into what is Stalkerware um, and why is it making cyber headlines at the moment. Yeah, it's oh, man. This is this is the creepy stuff. Um, you know, Stalkerware basically is um, it's it's an app generally that will go on your phone, so whatever um, device you're using. And the there look there are things that are purportedly for things like looking after your child. So if they've got a mobile phone, that you could sneakily install um, this you know, essentially spyware slash stalkerware on the device, with a view to collecting data from the device. It just lets you kind of know what the the kid is up to. So network traffic, um, GPS data, uh, audio access, so you can get access to the microphone, cameras, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you can see where this is going to go before, <laughs> you know, <laughs> before you you even kind of finish any of the sentences here. Clearly, this is stuff that will be then misused for stalkers and people with nefarious purposes in mind. That's the name stalkerware. Mm. Um, so the, the idea here is that if you get this stuff on your phone, you don't even necessarily know that it's there, right? So it's designed to sort of run in the background, look like a system process. Um, it's got an insane level of... Um, permissions so you know your photos browsing history network activity uh, who you're calling um, access to the, the microphone to the camera like it's just a huge huge amount of stuff to be able to look at um and, and often in real time so you know you can physically see where somebody is so you know if you've got physical access to a device i think that's one of the things to kind of know about it generally it's side loaded so they're trying to get rid of the stuff from the stores for <laughs> very obvious reasons um but the reality is that quite a lot of people who suffer from things like domestic uh, abuse uh, will report that they have been tracked by their their stalkers, their abusers, whatever you want to call them, via stalkerware. So this is a very, very real problem. And mm. um, it's not one of those you know we we talk about cyber stuff you know a lot where the impact is money. It's it's um you know it's it's that it's you know business impact. This is stuff that will actually affect um, human safety. So there's uh, clearly a, a problem here. Many people are trying to get get this stuff um, classified, and I think rightly as malware. You know, it's it 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 feels like that to me. Um, it doesn't feel like there's any 
I'm not a parent, so maybe I, you know, I can't speak. <laughs> you are. Maybe you've got a better, you know, better gauge in whether this seems like something reasonable to do. But um, I grew up in an era where you could leave the house at seven in the morning and come home at seven <laughs> at night, and no one knew where we were, what we we're doing, and here we all are. We survived. So I probably just have a, yeah, it makes me feel funny. But um, yeah, it's it's in the news. Um, TechCrunch have done a cracking um article actually on um the downside of this. Like you need another one is that. The company the companies who produce this, if they get popped, then your data can then sort of end up in the hands of of hackers or you know even worse people than the stalker, if that's even possible. Mm. Um, and that's you know partly where I had this ended up kind of on the radar was just the TechCrunch article was autumn, um, was awesome where they they did a really kind of deep um, sort of journalistic job of of pulling apart a particular organization that was producing stalkerware, tied together a bunch of uh, organizations that were kind of obfuscating themselves it sounds like um but there was a vulnerability that essentially led the leaking of hundreds of thousands of people's data um out because the the you know the core application which multiple stalkerware apps were built on so you know mm-hmm. foundational piece of software almost you know bringing back to the problem with in this case it's not open source but it's the same problem you know one app is using a you know or sorry multiple yeah. apps using the same core uh, core code base, and um, yeah, with the result being that uh, you know, a bunch of people get their data leaked. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, it's it's one of those ones where, like you say, like as a as a parent, you sort of have this notion of do we need eyes and ears and everything? Like you know, like it feels like it feels very different world um, these days that, that the kids are in, and that um, one that just feels. I don't know, with a greater a great deal of trepidation around what can go wrong all the time. You feel yeah. like that like there is something and that you know, and they are just glued to their devices. Like it is like it's a constant battle, um, as any parent knows. And uh um and so you just you don't know what's happening a lot of the time. And so you can see the appeal for these things from that type of perspective of thinking, I'm actually you know, I'm I'm helping, I'm doing the right thing. You know, um, that's questionable in its own right, right? And uh, probably <laughs> need to talk to you, talk to them first, and uh, and probably under- try to understand what's going on. But that's that's much easier said than done. Like, so I have no no doubt that you know there would be a lot of people doing this, you know, with the right intentions, right, and trying to do the right thing and that type of thing. Um, but you know, so that's you know, I guess a personal decision and and I guess personal sort of you know values and that that people need to weigh up but i think it's the last point that you say is is that where does this information go who's storing it and then at scale what does that mean um and if these organizations are creating this like were they have they created it with all the best intentions in the world in terms of the software or is it you know this data gathering and therefore you know um you know they might make a little bit of money out of you know a few parents installing it how much money do they make out of selling it you know on the dark web so that's maybe i'm going too far but that's the concern right is is what happens you know whether that's intentionally or through them being you know compromised and hacked themselves um but that's where it goes from you know individual sort of concern one to one to one to you know a mass concern all of a sudden yeah yeah and that the that idea of the mass concern is like certainly where my head ends up with this stuff is that um the you know, I mean the collection of data you you probably get a sense I'm not a huge fan of that ever really um, unless there's very very good reasons to do it um because you just end up having to protect it long term right it's the biggest mistake most organizations whether that's government or 
private enterprise make is that they just collect too much data and then they've got to pay a bunch of money to protect it. Where if you just don't collect it in the first place, you're probably in a better position. When you think about stalkerware, it's raison d'etre um, is literally the collection of data to, you know, in, as you said, in theory, provided to one other person, but if it's got to be stored somewhere. Mm. Um, and these companies, they, they've got a history already of being attacked by generally hacktivists that are uh, unhappy with, you know, what stalkerware stands for and the, mm-hmm. the sort of the risk to human life or human safety, um, given the amount of, of, of abusers that have, you know, kind of reported having stalkerware on their phones. I, I find that just so astonishing, creepy. Um, actually, only it's a couple of years ago because Kaspersky um, Labs re- released a report, and um, it's the US, Russia, and Brazil were the three countries most affected by stalkerware. So, kind of interesting that there's, you know, there's a uh, a podium for for this stuff. But you know, I wonder what does that sort of yeah. I don't know if there's any correlation to other things there. It was interesting. Three countries, not necessarily the ones that I would have thought were top of the top of the list. Uh, maybe one of them. I'm not so surprised, but um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, indeed, and uh, I think it's uh, it leads nicely into our next story, which is uh, I guess a review of of the notion of the utilitarian notion of allowing Australia's intelligence agencies to expand their data gathering powers. Um, but we know that there's inherent risks in the latest report from the Commonwealth Ombudsman found that breaches continue to occur across many agencies when it comes to the handling of both stored communication and in transit or telecommunication data. Um, so this tension between access to the data for good versus the inherent risk of misuse doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Yeah, like it, it doesn't. Um, and you can probably hear the sigh of resignation because I feel like, you know, <laughs> we, we have this conversation over and over and over again. And it's some version of um, it's really important for everybody's safety that we, you know, have the ability to get this data or intercept this data or, you know, fill in the blank. You know, we'll, we will only use it for very specific cases and, and that's kind of it. And, you know, it'll be all it'll be all kosher and, um, you know, well-managed in terms of processes. And then at some point there's a review or an audit and the audit will say there's been massive overreach. They're not following processes. People are accessing data um, in a way that they probably shouldn't. Um, and, uh, and rinse and repeat, you know, we just, and it's not Australia, it's, it's kind of everywhere. Right. Um, and you know, again, same old conversation you and I have had a million times, the, the, the internal um, conflict where you you want people to be safe and you want my friends who are cops, you know, um, I want their job to be easier than it is sometimes because I've heard how difficult it actually can be for them to do the right thing and to actually um, find the information that they need to pursue the the bad guys. But it's the bit where I, I think um, there's a trust issue here, and that to me is at its core where. We need, we're at a time, I would say, in the world, not just in Australia, but in so many countries where we actually really need to be building trust with the populace when it comes to this stuff rather than uh, eroding it. So it almost feels like some of these agencies um, and some of the ones that were criticized, instead of ending up in the ombudsman report, that you almost go overboard in terms of following process and in terms of making sure that you've done the right thing so that there is no... There is no conversation like this where we literally don't have the conversation because the agencies that are involved follow the, the you know the right um, uh, processes um, have got the policies in place so that the correct people are authorizing um, any kind of interception or access to data and that they've got the policies and the things in place to store data correctly if they do 
um, if they are granted um, access to that data. So there's no kind of mishandling. There's no boo-boos. We're not going to be you know dealing with some <laughs> some podcast episode where we talk about the <laughs> fact that the data that was intercepted was then popped somewhere else or leaked somewhere else. Blah blah blah. So yeah, it's like it is such a tricky one because I think fundamentally it almost goes back to the Ukraine uh, conversation where the reality is so much stuff has shifted to a digital format that crime has followed it. So you sort of need to be able to do stuff in that realm as well in much the same way as people can get a search warrants or you know do any of those kind of things that they can do in the physical world. Like we need to be able to have a sensible conversation around what that means in terms of the cyber um, cyber realm. Um, the worry is that if if there's rails put in place, they're there for a reason. And I think anytime you go outside of those rails, all it does is erode the trust. And then when we actually do need this stuff, everyone kind of gets up in arms. People people like me get freaked out because it's like, well, hang on, you've you know, last time around this happened, last time around this happened, last time around this happened. And it seems like it would just be easier for everybody if um yeah, if the right thing was done from the start rather than waiting to be uh, audited or have an ombudsman report come out to say, well, actually, this you know, here's these agencies at a federal level that have kind of done the wrong thing. Mm. Or yeah, level. look, yeah, to me, look, uh, I think you, you've probably hit on two two core points there that I think are just fundamental to this. The, the first one is, you know, the procedures and governance internally in each agency to get access. You know, what does that mean? What are the oversights? Um, what actually need, what is the process that needs to be followed? Who has the authorization? How do they allow that to occur? That is fundamental because, like you say, um, we can't, I don't think we can go to a world where we say we're not collecting and we're not monitoring and we're not doing these things because, um, because then, you know, something happens on a, on a large scale and everyone says, shouldn't we have known that and mm. been able to protect, right? So, so I don't, I think we've moved beyond, you know, saying we can't, we, we, no monitoring is, is the answer. That's not the case. But it is how do you actually govern that effectively? And, you know, this again, back to, you know, a lot of the cyber world has mirrored what's happened in the real world. You know, for years, there's been this governance around rules and evidence and how you collect it and all that sort of thing um, in the physical world. And time and time and time again, you know, that's, that hasn't been followed um, and that has jeopardized cases, you know, um, it's jeopardized, you know, law enforcement across the board. Um, unfortunately, I guess it's it's human nature that sometimes under pressure, time, all of those sort of things and, and often, often people trying to do the right thing but just overreaching, right, and not allowing for the process that's been set up. So how do we get that balance of you know, of governance, but not bureaucracy, right? Because these things often are going to be time critical as well. They're going to have to move at pace. So decisions and people need to be on the ball, on the money, knowing what to do and being able to share the data so that it can be used, you know, in for all the right intents and purposes that we that we want it to be. So, and, and that's the area to me. And it's, you know, and then that's subject to, people right and human nature and human error and everything else that goes with it so that's the hard one um, because at the end of the day we can put as much process in place as you like but it's going to be, come down to the people involved and that's going to uh, you know continue to be you know i guess challenged i think yeah 100 i mean it's like control drift uh, drift or policy drift in, in an organization right i mean you might put the 
the processes in place and then over time they get a little bit lax and you know people sort of slightly fall out of the rails and then a little bit more a little bit more and next thing you know um you've got some some issues i mean some of the articles are reporting that um um, yeah, the office here, I'm quoting here, the office found journalist information warrants were misused and there was an issue with sufficient seniority of authorized officers. And, you know, again, I know I joke about being tinfoil hatty, but like any time I see journalists getting sort of trapped into stuff like this, I find that a real, yeah, that's that's kind of the canary in the coal mine in some ways, you know, of all the things we need to protect, it's that. Um, journalists and, and the media f- to be able to go and do their jobs without fear of, data interception putting their sources at risk or you know you know whatever it may be um that anything there there's a chilling effect on um journalism or any self-editing which i think already happens for other reasons like we just yeah we kind of don't need that i would say the other thing i think about dan is this information and this is a question right it definitely is not a statement but certainly back um when um you know, the Patriot Act was happening in the mass surveillance of the US and, you know, Mr. Snowden came out and, and sort of said, hey, well, actually, here's what prison is doing, blah, blah, blah. One of the big things that came out of that was out of all the information that was being collected, how ineffective it actually was in terms of like proactively identifying, you know, the baddies or the bad people. And that actually is just a tremendous amount of noise and a lot of stuff that you get caught, you know, you capture, but actually very hard to draw a line between the mass surveillance and good security outcomes for a country that it, that is not a statement i have no idea i don't work in this i'm not a i've never been part of any of the three letter organizations and there's a bunch <laughs> of stuff i've no doubt happens that i have no idea about but i would love at some point just to see here's the roi for this stuff like we don't need you know details but we just need some numbers saying hey look we're able to stop xyz number of these type of crimes we're able to stop five of these things, four of these, um, you know, the, the, the big, scary, um, important stuff that would probably make us all feel better about this stuff. Yeah, you need a good case study, right? Where it works well. Um, and look, I think it also then gets to that notion of the second point uh, that you raised, Gar, around like, you know, again, it might be collected for a point in time but how long do you have to hold on to it um and what does that mean and does that create inherent risks um of it being you know being attacked and then being breached um you know down the track and that as well Uh, again so i think it's just inherent you know notion around you know security resilience and you know and, and ensuring that these things are as secure as possible because you know, it is going to be collected, um, and that does mean that it becomes, you know, a large target for somebody at some point in time as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that, and that's the thing, and yeah, it's and and, and I know what we're talking about is not mass surveillance, right? It's um, mm. in in theory, you know, niche cases or you know, very specific warrant based or case based, um, you know, data interception and whatnot. But um, I think there's there's just an interesting trend to more and more more and more power to you know look at data look at people online and, and actually alter and manipulate people's social presence online but it feels like you're getting to do more with less oversight it feels like that's the trend which i don't think that ends well well let's uh let's wrap up today's episode with a quick review of the latest breaches to make the headlines starting with a look at the impact on toyota's factory operations after a supply chain attack 
Yeah, so uh, Toyota, unfortunately, um, they got popped. And uh, as a result, um, there's 14 plants in Japan. So I think that's about a third from, <laughs> from memory, about a third of their production capabilities um, is, is being impacted. And, you know, this again, this is where cyber and the real world are just tied so closely together these days, because anyone who's trying to buy a car at the moment in Australia certainly will know that pretty much every brand has a waiting list of six months, 12 months, 18 months, depending on what you're trying to buy. And the second-hand market as a result has just gone off the gone off the charts completely. It's nearly as good as the housing market in Australia. So <laughs> at some point, uh, yeah, like a RAV4 is going to cost the same as a three-bedroom apartment in Bondi. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's kind of a, it's a scary one, right? They, um, they had sort of cyber attacks hit and, um, as a result, they're, they're currently experiencing production voltages in, um, uh, in their facilities. So that's going to mean uh, clearly there'll be an impact to, um, yep, given an impact to production, you will assume an impact to the ability to buy Toyota cars, um, unless they can do some sort of catch up, but I very much doubt that they will be able to, just given the supply chain issues that are, yeah, already sort of happening. Um, there was a question in, in some of the articles around this that, you know, given the timing, was it Japan kind of throwing its lot in with you know the sort of pro-Ukraine sides here, and and you know does that mean it was? You know, was it related to that? I don't think there's any smoking gun or no one's really pointing to it. It's more of a question at the moment. Um, it could be, and this is the problem now, Dan, isn't it? Everything that happens will be going, hmm, is this, is this related to what's happening in Ukraine? Um, yeah. No, indeed, it's, uh, yeah, and obviously Toyota also, you know, famous for just-in-time manufacturing, right? They've been doing it for a long time and uh, um, sort of pioneered that whole approach. Um, but when your supply chain, you know, comes to a halt, um, it grinds everything to a halt because you don't have anything, you know, in the backlog to actually sort of go and, and sort of, you know, take out of storage, if you like. So, uh, so yeah, it definitely has a, an immediate impact as well. I think that's the thing on, on their actual production. That, what you've just said there is so important and more broadly to Toyota than I would say to everybody. Forget about cyber, but um, the JIT supply chain stuff, it's so brittle that, you know, you see, forget about cyber, like I say, but like COVID mm-hmm. hits and all of a sudden, you know, supply chain is impacted around the world because everything is shipped to, you know, be ready to go, as you say, just in time. And And like, do you see, like, is there a time where we go back to, some sort of a buffer locally for things that we can, you know, where we're like nation state prepper, <laughs> a prepper uh, basements, you know, somewhere under Parliament House, maybe with a you know bunch of canned beans and you know the things that we need to continue as a as a country. But um, I think yeah, there's some big questions that I would hope are being asked at the top levels of every government around what it needs to be, what it yeah, what's needed to be resilient in today's world. Yeah, indeed. Big question there, Gar, that's for sure. Uh, the next headline that we saw was NVIDIA, the global multi-billion dollar manufacturer of graphics chips, announced that its internal systems were completely compromised by a potential cyber attack that has taken part of its business offline for a couple of days. What happened at NVIDIA, Gar? Yeah, like I, I don't know that anyone fully knows like who was um, behind the attack, but it was certainly Whopper. And you know, these are the... the, the the folks who make a lot of the world's graphics cards, which um, I'm not a, do a little bit of gaming, not that much, but um, these things have just rocketed in value um, through a combination of 
people working from home and then sort of gaming more at home, I suspect. And then also uh, with the emergence of cryptocurrencies, their uh, graphics cards tend to be really good at sort of doing the thing of mining and is able to crunch numbers in a way that your kind of your core CPU and um, the onboard chips within most computers, you know, they're not as good at that. Um, so, you know, the, the thing happens, they, they got done just at the end of February and, um, as I said, it was, it was pretty impactful and a lot of systems down, developer tools impacted, a lot of outages. What's come to light since then is some of the information that has been uh, extracted, which is kind of a worry actually. Um, so things like uh, code signing certificates, um, that have been, I think they were part of a, like a 20 gig, you know, a proof of we've got you, um, but yeah, part of what came out of that was the sort of source code API documentation and then these um, code signing certs. And what that means is there's a potential for um, an attacker to basically, you know, kind of get in at a driver level. So you're talking about kind of kernel level attacks, which is it's never a good thing, not surprisingly. So there's obviously concerns uh, about that. Um, and also part of what was in the trove was the... So part of what NVIDIA had done with uh, some of the graphics cards was deliberately throttle them when they detected that they were mining Ethereum. So one of the kind of cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. So the idea there was you limit the ability for crypto miners to use them and then get them back into the hands of just regular, you know, <laughs> Bob and Alice who want to sit at home and play um, Call, Call of Duty. I've probably aged myself really badly there. There's probably <laughs> some awesome game everybody's playing these days that I, uh, I don't know, it's not Minecraft, whatever. Um, but, you know, they, they wanted to get the, the cards back in their hands, so they deliberately throttle the cards when they detect that they're being used for Ethereum mining. And part of what's come out in the, the breach apparently is the code that's done that does that. So you can now bypass the Ethereum throttling for NVIDIA cards, which again has a roll-on effect to people who are just wanting to buy a card to play a game. So yeah, a bunch of things have have come out in that first um, tranche of data that they've they've released. So you know, kind of remains to be seen what else is yeah is going to be is going to be part of that. Yeah, based on what you've shared there, it feels like this one's not over, right? It's not no. just the attack on them. Um, you know, as often is it's you know the impact on that organization. But where is this going to go from here? Uh, yeah. Let's keep a watching brief on that one. Yep, definitely. Uh, the final story is the OAIC have released the latest six-month review from the Notifiable Data Breaches Scheme with some, what, surprising data in there this time, Gar? Yeah, I think uh, look, it's such a, a funny one to me, Dan, if I'm honest. the like When the NDB legislation came in, I feel like we, we, I was certainly slightly obsessed with it. You know, it was kind of... Waiting for the reports to come out, and um, I think many people in our industry were. We th I think we we thought we were going to get a barometer for, you know, cyber attacks in general. Um, but uh, yeah, like as as it happens, it's it feels like the excitement has kind of dropped away, and now you're just into the to, to the numbers. So you know, they're reporting that there was six uh, four hundred sixty four Australian data breaches that were reported in the second half of twenty twenty one, um, which you know. That, that's the number, that's the absolute number. What was interesting though, was that there was a drop um, of almost 10% in that six months leading into December, which I'm hoping that's a good thing. Like, you know, Optimist Me says that that's because organizations are getting better. They're spending the money on controls, like stuff is starting to go in the right direction when it comes to protecting data breaches. 
Um, that's optimist me. That's that's kind of what I'm <laughs> hoping and thinking is going on there. Um, yeah, it's just a little bit of an interesting one to see a drop anytime these days when you see a drop in things like privacy breaches or notifications, I should say. Yeah, the instant thing is, well, hang on, everything is trending up. How is this going down? Mm. So, yeah, definitely surprising. Indeed. I mean, I think that's the thing. It feels wrong, right? Mm. Like to have a drop, it just feels wrong based on everything else that we're seeing in the market. So, um, so yeah, definitely one to keep an eye on. It'll be interesting to see in six months' time uh, what happens in the, in the first half of 2022. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was a bump in... Um, the breach is due to human error and if you saw that data like that's that's up 43 <laughs> percent so it kind of swings and roundabouts um mm. and that i suppose i'm not massively surprised by that because people are working from home and probably in a mental state and still very distracted you know despite being two years into covid um yeah i think more and more uh, that that one has become the the hot button for many organizations how do we fix the human error issue and um, you know a 43 percent increase there is yeah, that's not not insignificant. Indeed. Well, thanks, Gar. I appreciate your insights as always. I'm already excited for next week's in-depth interview with a great cyber practitioner. Yeah, Dan. So next week we've got uh, Sarah Abak from Julix Group who's joining, and um, anyone's kind of cross paths with Sarah. She's pretty awesome, actually. She's got a lot to say, and um, we get into conversations around cyber awareness fatigue and. The, the talent conversation, so kind of attracting and retaining cyber talent. Some very, very cool insights there from Sarah, actually, on that one. Um, and then we talk a little bit about sort of big business of uh, e-crime as well. So fairly broad conversation, but um, yeah, Sarah's a pretty awesome person to get to talk to. So really good episode. Indeed, it will be. Um, and I don't do this often, but I will take a moment to quickly cross-promote an event run by Mimecast last week called Mimecast Connect 2022. You can watch the replay on demand at your leisure with great insights from a former Prime Minister, an ex-FBI cyber agent, a futurist, and real-life insights from Sarah and other CISOs as well. So do check out Mimecast Connect 2022. There's something for everyone. Until next week, if you'd like to continue exploring key topics in cybersecurity, please jump onto getcyberresilient.com and check out some of the latest articles, including Maturity versus Risk, choosing the right cybersecurity model for your business. A look at how social engineering attacks are evolving and how to beat them, and how to make cloud security part of your organization's DNA. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe.